Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. It is the 22nd of January 2018 and this is episode number 47, our third programme of the new year. In this episode, I talk to Dr Spencer Jones, Senior Lecturer in Armed Forces and War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton about the Chinese Labour Corps during the Great War. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, thank you, Tom. It's wonderful to be on the podcast. The story of how I got into the Great War is um, a sort of chance event, really. I'd always been interested in war in general. I was one of those children who was just born fascinated by everything to do with soldiers and conflict. I had family members who'd lived through the Second War, of course. I later learned I had family members who'd been in the First War as well. But what really got me into the First World War was a chance encounter in my newsagents when I was perhaps 10 or 11. And in those days, the my local um, paper shop used to have a used book stand. And I went in one day uh, with honest intentions to buy, I, don't, I can't even remember what I was buying, a magazine or some sweets or something like that. And on the shelf was a used copy of John Terrain's The Retreat from Mons, or I should say The Retreat to Victory. I was struck by the cover, which of course, as you may know, is the last stand of Battery L, the last gun of Battery L at the action at Neary on the 1st of September 1914. The cover drew me in. I purchased the book for what I think was the princely sum of 50 pence, took it away with me, read it that week, and the rest, as they say, was history. I was completely enraptured by the, the 1914 campaign, especially, and I've, I've kept that interest ever since. And now, more than 20 years later, I'm still here. So although I always had that interest, it was a, a chance encounter with the, the work of the late, great John Terrain that really got me going. Now, today, we're going to talk about the Chinese Labour Corps. I wonder whether you could actually start by telling us what was the Chinese Labour Corps and what was its purpose? Well, the Chinese Labour Corps was... Um, Almost exactly as the name implies, it was a labouring unit of actually it would be larger than a British Army Corps, very, very large numbers by the end of the war. A labouring unit formed and organised from Chinese volunteers who were shipped out from China, brought to not merely the Western Front, but also the Middle East and were used in all sorts of labouring tasks. The purpose of it was to relieve frontline soldiers, both British and French for that matter, of their labouring duties. One of the problems that had emerged in the British Army, particularly in 1916, as it grew and grew and grew, and as it prepared for the Battle of the Somme, was that infantrymen were required to do so much labouring work, preparing trenches and loading stores, etc, etc, everything you can imagine to prepare an enormous offensive, that it enormously diminished training time. One of the main complaints that was made immediately after the uh, debacle on the 1st of July was that the men were ill-trained. They had not had enough time to train. And Ivor Maxey, of course, whose 18th Division had been one of the success stories on the 1st of July, actually told Montgomery, Chief of Staff of 4th Army, that the key element was time to train. And they felt that the British Empire should be able to find a labouring force from somewhere, no matter what race it was, to relieve the individual soldiers of their fatigue duties. The Chinese Labour Corps was designed to carry out that work. It was designed to relieve the front line of the over riding necessity to carry out labouring duties, allow the soldiers more time to rest and to train and be more combat effective. 
and relieve them of that burden. So obviously, Chinese labour core came from China, but it's it's obviously a massive country with a with a large population. Where did the the workers generally come from in China, and how were they recruited? Well, it's quite interesting because the British and the French tended to draw their recruits from different parts of China. It might seem obvious for the British Empire to draw much of its recruits from Hong Kong, but in actual fact, the governor of Hong Kong greatly discouraged this activity. He actually claimed that the the local Chinese population was uh, very susceptible to malaria. Um, was were not healthy, were not of the right mental or or indeed physical attributes for work on the Western Front. It's been suggested since he didn't want to see the economy of Hong Kong suffer as its workforce departed for uh, what was in the uh, context of 1916-17 a better paid job. So instead, the British, we primarily drew uh, labour from Shandong province, which is in northern China. It's on the Yellow Sea. It's almost directly opposite the Korean Peninsula. The French, however, with their stronger links in Indochina, modern day Vietnam, drew more primarily from southern China. Of course, China's a huge country and actually bringing uh, Chinese laborers to the coast was was a major consideration. And so it was natural that both the French and the, the British drew from their concessions in China, their port cities, uh, where there was greater infrastructure. And of course, there was the ability to actually ship the labor corps out of, um, out of the country and to the Western Front. The recruitment of the Chinese Labour Corps is quite interesting. The, there was a long history of actually China, of Chinese labour being exported around the world. You might, of course, be familiar with the use of Chinese labour in the American West for the construction of cross-continental railroads. So there was a tradition of actually um, the Chinese, for want of a better word, exporting labour. The British had taken advantage of this in the Boer War, 1899 to 1902. And when in the aftermath of that conflict, it was necessary to reopen the mines of South Africa and also reconstruct much of the country, which, of course, had been devastated in the guerrilla phase of the war. A large amount of Chinese labour was brought in to actually carry out this work. It actually was a, a, a political hot potato in uh, 1902 to, to 1904, uh, upset of uh, labour interests in both Britain and South uh, South Africa, because, of course, Chinese labor was cheap and it was not unionized. And it was actually a factor in the defeat of the conservative government at the hands of the incoming liberal government in 1906. So there's a tradition here that both Britain and France could build upon. And in the early days, uh, the early part of this, China was not yet a allied power or an associated power. It was strictly speaking, it was a neutral power, although it's strongly inclined towards the allies in 1916. And whilst it w- was necessary to maintain a semblance of neutrality, the Chinese government was actually quite keen to support the Allies to, uh, with, to its utmost. Initially, the Chinese Labour Corps was actually recruited through a system of private recruiters. You might r- rather unflatteringly know them as gang masters. And these were individuals or sometimes groups of individuals who would uh, find Chinese workers who were prepared to volunteer, were prepared to sign the contracts and were prepared to be shipped out. And these gang masters would assemble them, carry out at least cursory checks on their physical and uh, mental condition, their well-being, their suitability for work, and then would present them actually to the British or the French authorities at the port side, for which they themselves would be paid. And at that point, the contracts would be signed and the labourers would pass under into effectively British and French a jurisdiction and authority and be shipped away. So initially it was a private enterprise. It changed as China, when China joined the war as an allied power in 1917. From that point onwards, the Chinese government actually recruited labourers directly as a wartime um, expediency. And that allowed the, the Chinese to produce a lot more labour in, sh- in a shorter space of time and also rather more cheaply as well because the gangmaster system uh, was cut out. The middleman was, was effectively uh, abolished. Although the downside to that, at least according 
according to some British sources, is the quality of labour declined. Um, you've got government officials simply recruiting whoever's available and not really caring once the, those poor people uh, are put onto the ship. Whereas when it was on the private enterprise, at least there was some attempt to actually ensure that those who were volunteered and those who were sent to the Western Front and beyond were in some sort of physical state. So that's quite a long answer to a, a fairly straightforward question, but I think it's quite interesting how that system is set up. So once the, the Chinese Labour Corps are deployed, um, what sort of numbers are we talking about and what type of work did they do on the Western Front? It's a little bit difficult to actually pin down exact Chinese Labour Corps numbers. The British and the French recruited separate Chinese Labour Corps. There was never an allied Chinese Labour Corps. The British Chinese Labour Corps was numbered a approximately 55,000 uh, 55, by the end of 1917 and possibly rose to somewhere in the region of about 90,000 by the end of 1918. Although the paperwork's a little fragmented and it can be a little bit difficult to actually pin down exactly how many Chinese labourers uh, were under arms. The French um, may well have recruited up to uh, even more than that. Perhaps I've seen figures quoted as high as 140,000, although sometimes I, I think that the both the British and the, the French Chinese labour corps are actually being uh, combined numbers there. But what we can certainly say is that there were over 100,000 Chinese labourers deployed in support of British and French armies over the course of the war. And the type of work that they would carry out was perhaps more varied than their name may suggest. When we hear the name Chinese Labour Corps, we automatically think of the most fundamental labours, unloading trains, moving stores around, heavy manual work, not necessarily skilled work, but one that requires a great deal of endurance and fitness. They certainly carried that out, unloading and um, unloading trains, unloading barges, reloading them with um, goods going back towards the ports, was an essential part of the Chinese Labour Corps' work. But they also carried out a huge variety of other tasks, including laying roads, repairing roads, creating airfields, and perhaps most famously of all, and quite appropriate given the recent centenary of the Battle of Cambrai, Chinese Labour Corps were heavily involved in tank repair and tank maintenance. Uh, and this could sometimes involve actually skilled work in uh, the, the use of the Chinese labour to repair and service tanks is rather largely neglected. And in the context of Cambrai, it was the Chinese Labour Corps that carried out the work of actually creating the famous fascines that were positioned atop the tanks to allow them to cross the trenches, uh, the widened German Hindenburg Line trenches, once the tanks approached. So in actual fact, the Chinese Labour Corps was not just about unskilled manual labour. Um, there's no accurate figures about how many Chinese labourers would we were class as skilled. But certain British paperwork I've seen suggests that as many as 3,000 to 4,000 labourers were classified as skilled workers with some sort of technical expertise that as far as the British could um, uh, allow would actually be used where possible. And this is why the Chinese Labour Corps was able to undertake much more technical work with tanks, with trains, uh, with other engines uh, than the name may suggest. So they would do all sorts of work. These these were a, a an almost a, um, a reserve army of labour to use Karl Marx term that could be deployed as and when was needed. The Chinese arrive. How do the British view them? Well, this is one of the more contentious issues, shall we say, of the Chinese Labour Corps. The, we have to view this through the context of the time. This is an era of social Darwinism. The, there is a strongly held belief across uh, Europe, certainly, that certain races are simply at a higher stage of evolution than other races. It's based on pseudoscience and inherent uh, racism. It's also a way of reinforcing class structures as well. So we can see Darwinism feeds through in the view that, the, that white men are superior to brown, yellow, 
um, or black men. And yet even within that stratification, we can say the white ruling class are superior to the white working class. And it's a, a way of stratifying and uh, dividing uh, the, uh, the, the, the human population effectively. And it imbues the British establishment in 1914 to 1918. And they regard the Chinese as a rather childlike people. They look at China and see it as a, they believe it is a rather decadent nation. It doesn't appear to be technologically or socially advanced. The long and rich cultural history of China is regarded as, as a curious pastime, something that represents what the Chinese ones were rather than what they may be again. And the Chinese are viewed with a with, with a very patronising and, dare I say, it, a very racist and perhaps even xenophobic view by many within the British establishment. Whereas other elements of the British Empire are regarded rather favourably, built on what's called, of course, the martial race theory, the idea that certain races are particularly well suited to combat and war. We might say the Sikhs of India, the Zulus of South Africa, the Maoris of New Zealand. These races are viewed, though still as being beneath uh, the white ruling class, they're viewed as having great potential. The Chinese are viewed as rather childlike and rather infantile, uh, a race that needs to be brought up to the standards of other races around the empire, what we would term the white man's burden. And it's in, I've laboured this point because it's important to understand that that view infuses the British establishment. And so when the Chinese arrive, they are regarded as simple. They're regarded as inherently unreliable in some ways, that they are not a, an advanced or sophisticated uh, culture or peoples. And this means that they're treated with uh, unusually severe discipline. Of course, when the Indian army had arrived in France in 1914, the, the British authorities initially prohibited any sort of fraternisation between Indian soldiers and French civilians. For the Chinese Labour Corps, this is taken uh, to a further extreme. The Chinese are not allowed to fraternise with civilians. They're not allowed to fraternise with British or French soldiers either. And the Chinese Labour Corps are kept in their own camps, which are almost prison-like. They're kept there seven days a week. They work a seven-day um, week. They have two holidays a year. Um, there is no weekend. There is no a daybreak in any of this labour, not allowed out except with very, very strict passes. And they're treated, the best way I can describe it is rather like an indentured servant. That's not entirely the correct word, of course, because they are uh, being paid a wage, they are being contracted. But their conditions and their uh, essential lack of freedom, they're here for three years, they've signed up for three years, they're not allowed to leave until that three years is over. Uh, their lack of freedom has more in common with indentured servitude than it does have with work. They're, of course, commanded by uh, white NCOs and officers, often with uh, the the aid of Chinese translators who have a slightly higher status within the Chinese Labour Corps. But overall, they're not especially uh, well treated. This said, you may then, t it, the obvious question is, why do Chinese labourers volunteer if they're going into these difficult conditions? They're in a war zone. It's, it's pretty grim. And the reason is, the pay that the British pay, which is pretty low itself, uh, you know, it's measured in pence. It varies depending on the skill level of the Chinese recruit. But the pay that's available to these labourers is considerably greater than anything they could earn in China at the same time. Remember that China is predominantly a peasant society in 1916-17. Prospects of social advancement are exceedingly low. And the opportunity to actually go abroad and work has a long history of uh, elevating uh, individual Chinese farm families. Providing money from foreign work back to uh, the families at home in China is considered a very noble activity. And although the conditions are very poor and the pay to British eyes is extremely low, for those who are able to endure it and indeed able to survive, it actually makes economic sense. And that is why there is no 
shortage of volunteers to actually carry out the work. To 21st century eyes, it looks pretty ghastly. No freedom, no holidays, no breaks, minimal food, very, very strict discipline uh, and cripplingly low pay. But in the context of 1917 and 18, this is um, some workers would undoubtedly have seen it as an opportunity, willing to endure the hard conditions for the potential financial rewards if they could survive and then return home. So what contribution did the Chinese Labour Corps make to the Allied war effort on the Western Front? Their contribution was taking care of all the dirty work behind the lines. I mentioned earlier that the overriding pressure, particularly on the British Army, but also the French, in 1916-17 was finding Mampa to simply carry out work. One thing the Chinese Labour Corps could do is it could play a role in relieving that pressure. It could the, these, the Chinese labourers could carry out the dog's body work, the unloading, the reloading, repairing of roads, etc., the digging of uh, trenches and so on, far behind the lines, that normally would have been the duty of infantrymen. And this, of course, relieved some strain on the infantry, although, of course, anybody who's ever read a memoir of the Western Front will always find the infantrymen perpetually complaining about fatigue duty. It didn't uh, completely abolish the need for infantry to be involved in fatigue duty, but it did relieve that pressure somewhat, and it provided a very, very reliable source of very, very hard-working labour who could carry out work around the clock seven days a week in a way that even infantrymen of the day could not. And that was extraordinarily valuable, especially when we consider that in 1917 and 18, the Allies and Britain in particular are fighting a rich man's war for the first time um, and perhaps even the only uh, time in a major British war, Britain has uh, an embarrassment of riches in terms of its equipment, tanks, artillery, machine guns, aircraft and so on. But somebody has to unload these. Remember that everything that's arriving in theatre for the, the British Army is coming overseas, it's landing at a port, then it's coming to one of the railheads at either Hasbrook or or at the ends, it has to be unloaded and moved down the line. The Chinese Labour Corps can do that. And they, because they are able to work around the clock seven days a week, they greatly aid the flow of supplies uh, up to the front line and indeed the, the, the flow of um, materials coming back to be sent back to Britain in the other way. It never completely relieves the need for infantry to carry out these duties. But without the Chinese Labour Corps, the infantry would have been called upon to carry out the same levels of work that they were called upon to carry out in 1915 and early 1916, which many had recognised was simply unsustainable. And were members of the of the Corps actually killed or injured in their work? Uh, they certainly were. Um, exact casualties for the, the CLC are rather difficult to pin down. At least uh, 400 uh, Chinese Labour Corps members, actually French Chinese Labour Corps members, perished in February 1917 when the merchant ship that was carrying them, the Athos, was torpedoed by a German U-boat and sank almost with all hands, including almost all of its Labour Corps. A number of Chinese labourers died during the journey to the Western Front from sickness or accidents. A number um, would have died whilst on the Western Front, again, from sickness, ill health, uh, injury and so on. Uh, ten as well were actually executed for murder. Murder was a, uh, th that's an unusually high statistic. Um, if we consider the number of soldiers uh, or uniformed personnel executed for murder on the Western Front in the whole First World War, 10 Chinese Labour Corps members is a disproportionately high number. There's been some speculation on why this number was so high. A number of these murders were re re revolved around gambling debts. It was noted that the Chinese Labour Corps were, were very, very keen on gambling. When those When people got into debt, they could no longer pay. They were often 
beaten up, sometimes beaten a little too far, uh, resulting in death. But there was also at least one murder of a white officer, a white sergeant, actually, just after the war had finished. And so don't sometimes the, the idea that everyone who was executed in the First World War was, was were victims of shell shock and so on. I believe this idea has been well disputed, well disproven now. But the fact that the Chinese Labour Corps seems rather prone to, to murder and mayhem in this sense is, is unusual and significant and perhaps reflective of the frustrations they have actually in their conditions, uh, you know, rather brutalised by the, the conditions of their ca- of camp life turned towards violence, rather like prisoners kept in an overcrowded prison often, t- often turned to vices and violence. So perhaps the Chinese Labour Corps did as well. There's also some, some intriguing uh, casualty figures for the Chinese Labour Corps which were very, very difficult to actually determine the cause of. For example, there are over 200 Chinese Labour Corps listed as buried in Basra Cemetery, Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery. Um, we don't have the paperwork any longer to actually find the cause of death of these uh, individual labourers. We may speculate they perished in the unsanitary conditions of Basra in 1917, of course, when the port was being uh, rebuilt and refurbished prior to the advance of Baghdad. That's actually a feature of understanding Chinese Labour Corps casualties. The paperwork for them was was not filed in the same way that you would have for British soldier casualties or even British labourer casualties. And so we tend to have numbers rather than actual causes. We may therefore speculate that injury, work um, and sickness were the primary causes. But that's certainly not to say that um, some were not killed by stray shells or indeed other you know, stray shots. And did any other Allied powers um, use Chinese labour? You've mentioned that the French did, but um, did, did, for instance, the Portuguese or even the Germans consider using labour in the same way that the, the British forces did? Um, that, that's a very interesting question. Um, obviously, the French uh, used Chinese labour and in some ways led the way. In fact, it, there's certainly a suggestion Britain followed China's example in this. Other nations did use labour. Uh, the Portuguese took advantage of the existence of, uh, of British Chinese labour. And indeed, it, the Portuguese expeditionary force is quite interesting because originally it wanted to bring uh, African labour to support itself on the Western Front. And it was officially discouraged from doing so uh, by the British, partially because this would create a confusing logistical trail for the British. It would also mean the British ultimately would have to ship out this African labour for the benefit of the Portuguese. And there was a, a number of other reasons why the British were disinclined to do so. So instead, the Portuguese benefited from Chinese labour uh, themselves. For the Germans, the, the hunt for labour, especially in 1917, was absolutely fundamental to their wartime strategy. Of course, Germany had lost access to world seas almost at the opening of the war. And if it had ever considered bringing out Chinese labour, by the time it was really in need of labour, 1917, it was far too late to do so. So if I may digress a little from the Chinese subject, what the uh, Germans actually did was it took European labour, in some cases against the, uh, the locals' will. We're probably quite familiar with the use of what was effectively slave labour from the Eastern Front, Russians, Poles, Ukrainians, Belarusians, etc., brought home, either in the guise of prisoners of war, then put to work, or also civilians removed from their lands. But they also brought back French and Belgian civilians uh, and attempted to put them to work in Germany. The Belgian example is quite interesting as a, an example and a comparison point uh, to the Chinese Labour Corps. Uh, the Germans um, effectively deported tens of thousands of Belgian workers, took them into Germany, and presented them with a contract that would have effectively made the Belgian workers indentured servants. The Belgians went on strike and actually refused to sign this document and instead simply sort of sat around and uh, endured starvation rations, it must be said, at the same time, but simply refused to sign it and work. The French, however... uh, 
strength feeling some struck as well but others were bullied into accepting these these very damning contracts effectively they were they were little more than slave laborers but it's quite interesting to see the comparisons between britain and france of course having access to the world access to the empire their respective empires were of germany which never had a large empire in the first place a cut off from world seas has to instead turn to the occupied territories in its uh, in its desperate attempt to solve its labor shortages of 17 and 18 spencer Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.